Good morning, gentlemen. It's great to be here. When David uh, approached me with the idea that I would be talking about this topic, I, of course, said, no, you need to pick somebody else for this. I'll give you a list of names of people who've got their PhDs in theology and who would do a great job, who uh, talk about this all the time, and who are pastors of big churches, and they'll be able to do a good job. And then I thought about it, and I realized that, you know, that's the problem with this topic, and a lot of these topics that we've been talking about is we're, we're quick to say when somebody asks us a question about it, hey, let me, get you, let me introduce you to my pastor. He can, he can explain this to you. Let me introduce you to a, a link on, uh, on uh, YouTube, and there's a, great, there's a guy on there that will explain this thing great. See, the problem is we're in the front lines, right? We're in the trenches there. We're the ones that get the questions. And so then I became, I recognized the wisdom of David Hill when he uh, uh, selected me. And so I thank you, David, for the opportunity. So today we are going to talk about how can we trust that the Bible is true. And, and um, of course, all of you being believers, I'm sure you've got a, a hip pocket um, answer to this question. But for those of you who might not, this might be of some value to you as we talk today. But um, as, as we're going to work this, is it going to do anything? Uh, okay. I got to be close. So imagine that you need surgery. Something's wrong with you. You go to your doctor, and that doctor, well, geez, oh, Pete. <laughs> You know, you put all kinds of effort into putting something together that'll be useful. And, uh, uh, well, that's going to be the very top, though, unfortunately. Um, anyway, you go to your doctor, and he pulls out this, uh, this book, the big book of anatomy. And he looks at it briefly, and then he reaches for a scalpel, and he, and he goes, and he, and, he, and he starts to cut on you. And you say, hey, you know, wait a second. Um, how do you know that what you've got here is true. How do you know that what you're cutting on is me and, and what I need done to me? And he looks at you and he says, I have faith. And you say, what? And, and honestly, guys, that, that is the answer that is oftentimes given to this question, is I just believe it. And there was a famous apologist that said, since when do we realize that believing something makes it true? Isn't it truth that comes and then from truth that we have belief? But in our, in our world, in the way that we've been brought up, it sometimes is backwards. So uh, I am going to be very frustrated with this. So, um, so here's the deal. As, as Iron Man, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're out there living the life, uh, making decisions, leading an example in a way. And, and what you hope is that somebody's going to come up to you and they're going to say those words. They're going to say, wow, you're amazing. Uh, how is it that you're able to kind of be so calm in the midst of so much frustration? How is it that you know so much about... Uh, what's going on in the world and, and how you can be 
so encouraging to people who are having difficulties. And you go through and you talk about Jesus Christ and the way that he came and the way that he paid the penalty for your sin and the way that uh, if, if you believe in him that you can live forever with Christ. And they say, wow, that's amazing. Where did you hear that? And your answer nine times out of ten is going to be, I learned it in Sunday school. Or, and that's not kidding, that's percentage-wise. I learned it in Sunday school. Or, I grew up in a Christian family. My parents taught me. And that's great. And that's a wonderful answer. But then there's the follow-on. Well, but how do you know that it's true? And every discussion on this topic ends up going back to the same place. Well, it's in the Bible. And then they say, okay, I got it. I have heard of the Bible. But how do you know that the Bible is true? And that's when you say, well, I want you to watch this YouTube video, right? 76% <laughs> of the believers out there do not believe that the Bible is true from one cover to the other. 76%. And I know that probably in this room, there's probably some of you, I've been in Bible studies where this has been true, where somebody said, well, the Old Testament, uh, you know, there's some myth and allegory there. And uh, then you get the New Testament, though, that's solid. And my question is, well, what happens about the New Testament scripture that relates to the Old Testament? Well, okay, that's good. That's solid. Okay, so where do you draw the line? How can you trust that? And how can you ask somebody to base their lives on, the, on a book where you can't really say that from start to finish the thing is true? Well, you can Google it. We Google stuff, and you're going to find out, like we were talking here earlier this morning, there is a plethora of information on, the, on Google about how you can know the Bible is true. And some of it is good. Some of it's not so good. It can be overwhelming. And so I want to give you something this morning that maybe is a little less concrete, a little more abstract, something that you're going to be able to pull on. And I just have, you know, the way it works, an, an unusual capacity and an unusual experience that allows me to kind of draw on some information that I want to share with you this morning. And it starts with a story about a businessman and an amazing gift. Back in the 90s, I was teaching at Wheaton College. And I happened to meet a businessman, very successful, uh, had all the money that he would need, uh, wonderful family, Christian man, uh, just a terrific guy. And at one point, uh, I had, when, I had met, when I met him, uh, things had already started to, to, to get to happen in his life in this, in this area. But, he told me that he had received a gift, and it was a very unusual gift. It was a single page of a 1611 King James Bible, first edition. Now, for those of you who don't know, a 1611 King James Bible is unique. Back in 1604, James I of England decided there should be a Bible that was uh, the Bible that England would get behind and promote. Because, of course, at that time, England ruled the waves, right? England was it. And so he commissioned a group of people to get together and to work on this Bible, and they finished it in 1611. And we know it today as the King James Bible. Another name for this Bible is the authorized version of the Bible because it was the Bible that the Church of England promoted as, as that Bible. And so Bob was given a page of this Bible 
I brought with me two pages of that Bible this morning, if you want to come take a look at this later on this morning. Uh, this happens to be one of my favorite stories in Scripture in the Old Testament, the story of Gideon and his, his, his battle against the Midianites. So this is actually two pages from that Bible, but it's the original thing too, the, kind of, the thing that, uh, that Bob saw. And the, that man's name, by the way, was Bob Van Campen. Bob said the gift changed his focus for his life from that point forward. And what he wanted to do was help people to get the same feeling that he had when he saw this page. Because what this page did for him is it gave him a trust in the Bible that he had not realized before. He recognized three critical points when he saw this. These points were authenticity, accuracy, and authority. So let's talk about what those three are. Authentic, meaning that we have the real revelation of God to mankind. And in looking at that page, he recognized that. Accurate, that we have the words that God intended us to have when it came to understanding what that Bible was. And then authority, that God is behind all that we read and do as a changed life based on this word that we read. And so Bob saw those three things, and he wanted to try and help other people appropriate those things and trust that the Bible is true. And so he started a collection, a collection with a very definitive purpose in mind, and not just to have cool Bibles in his collection. He wanted to have Bibles that help people understand the Bible is true. And what we ended up with was what we now call the Van Campen Collection. And currently, it is down at the Holy Land Experience. Because uh, after Bob had amassed this collection, he passed away. God took him. And his family, at the time, I was working at a church up in Michigan with the family, and they decided that uh, the Holy Land Experience had been constructed, and they wanted to move that collection down to the Holy Land so that people could see this collection. And so I came on board with Sola Scriptura at that time, and we all moved down here to Florida, and we built this building here called the Scriptorium, Center for Biblical Antiquities. And it's down at the Holy Land Experience. How many of y'all, just by show of hands, have been able to go through that Scriptorium? That's great, because I will tell you that if you hadn't raised your hand there, you don't have an opportunity to do that anymore, because the Scriptorium is closing along with the Holy Land Experience. But what I want to give you today is an understanding of what we did as we built this building to help people understand these concepts of authenticity and accuracy and authority in a way that I think you're going to be able to grab onto when somebody asks you this question. So we created rooms. The idea was we only had a limited time, about an hour. Somebody had to go through this scriptorium, and we wanted them to go through it, come out the other end, and know that the Bible was true. So how do we do it? Well, we use those three concepts that Bob came to. The first room was the cuneiform room. Now, cuneiform is a clay tablet, and it's been imprinted with a little tool, and you can read the clay tablet. So wouldn't it be cool if there were clay tablets out there with Scripture on them? But there's not. This is all done before there was Scripture. But what we do have with cuneiform, and there's a picture of one that's uh, even a little closer. What we do have with this 
is we have references to things that are in the Bible. So this is uh, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar stone, which tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, from the Bible, actually lived and was a king. And so it corroborates what we learn from Scripture. This one here is the Sennacherib prism, which tells the story of King Sennacherib from Assyria, but in it, it recounts this whole concept of uh, the uh, siege of Jerusalem back in 701 BC. And so this gives us a sense that, hey, what we're reading in, in the Bible is authentic to what really happened. And these, these give us that sense. Now, this introduces kind of another whole perspective when you're talking about authenticity. And we only really touched on it in the, at, the, at the scriptorium, but I wanted to help you guys get it today. And that is the idea of history, in particular, the idea of archaeology. Now, you all recognize this famous archaeologist, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I want to introduce you to the real Indiana Jones. The real Indiana Jones is this guy here. His name is Bob Cornuke. Now, Bob Cornuke was a, an investigator with the police department for many years. And when he retired, he used his investigative skills, and his goal was to go around the world and to try and find archaeological proof of things that are in the Bible. And so Bob has done things like the story that you read about Paul in that boat off of uh, Crete in Acts 27, and the storm came up, and they had to throw out those four anchors. Bob went to Crete, spent a lot of time there, went diving with the locals, found what he believes to be those four anchors. Bob found what he believes to be the split rock of Horeb back in Exodus 17. This is the rock where Moses went up, hit the rock with his staff, split the rock, the water came out, God was angry, put down the fire on top of the rock. Bob has found what he believes to be that rock, complete with the fire on the top, and uh, uh, elements are all around the base of it where the people would have been as they were worshiping. The Red Sea crossing site. Bob found a place where under the water, there are elements of chariots and horse bones and people bones, because we know that after the people of Israel passed through, uh, Pharaoh's army went charging after him. The water came in and sort of, well, as the old unicorn said, floated them away, but their bones uh, ended up on the, on the base of the water, and he's able to track a path where that would have happened. He's been on several expeditions to find the Ark of Noah. He believes he's found it. He even brought me back a piece of petrified wood that dates back to the time of Noah, of the same kind of wood that the Ark would be made of. The Ark of the Covenant. I went on two trips with him to Ethiopia, where he believes he has found the Ark of the Covenant, an homage to the, the earlier Indiana Jones, right? And uh, in, a, in a place, and I think it's very likely that it's correct that it is in this place where he believes that it is. Probably the most important find recently, the real location of Mount Sinai. Most people believe from history Mount Sinai is located on the Sinai Peninsula. Bob has been several times um, to great, at great peril to Saudi Arabia to find what he believes to be the location of the real Mount Sinai, and now Saudi Arabia after reading the studies and all of the proofs of this, 
believe that Bob is true, welcoming him with open arms. They're going to build a city at the base of this location. They're going to pave a road up to this location so that people can go up and see where they believe to be the real Mount Sinai. Bob spends his life doing this, trying to help people understand that they can trust that the Bible is true. And I'll bet that some of you, after just hearing about those things in here, some of you have probably had your heart just a little bit lifted about the Scripture, saying, wow, if all that is true, man, maybe the whole thing is true. But the sword of science cuts both ways, right? They haven't found Eden. Can't find Eden. Do you, is it, do you use that as proof that Eden doesn't exist? They haven't found the Tower of Babel and the wreckage of what would have been left from that. So what do we say about that? You see, does archaeology prove that God wrote the Bible? Well, I don't know that it does, necessarily. It's an uncertain science. It's fallible, but it is useful. So then, in the scriptorium, we moved on to the next phase. And that is talking about the quality of the manuscripts. Now, this is where you'll get inundated with information online. When you start talking about the numbers and the quality of these manuscripts that we have, understand that originally the Bible was written on scrolls, and we had several of these scrolls in Van Campen collection, and they were on display, and they would show books of the Bible. We had the Isaiah scroll, which was very ornate, very beautiful. And so if you're talking about scrolls and you're talking about these manuscripts, one of the issues is, well, do you have enough of them to be able to say, okay, there's a preponderance of this, and I can, I can trust that it exists because there's so many of these. So let's talk about this. In the Old Testament, how much is there? Well, there's only relatively few in number, but you've got to understand why there may be just few in number of these scrolls. First reason is Jewish scribes, were very diligent about taking any of the scrolls that were in bad shape, any of them that were worn out, and they would destroy them so that they were only left with the best scrolls. And so they were constantly being destroyed and buried. But in 900 AD, the Masoretes took the, all the scrolls that they could find, and they decided they wanted to have just one scroll. And so they picked the very best, studied about it, picked the very best, got rid of all the rest. And so our hearts sink as a result of that. But in 1947, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now we're going to come back to this in a minute, but at this point, the only thing I want you to remember about Dead Sea Scrolls is there's a lot of them. And as a result of being a lot of them, we add that to the number of scrolls that actually existed. And then... We've got the Septuagint from the third century, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that gives us elements of the scripture that we can trust. And then there's this thing called Targums. Targums are pretty cool. They're Aramaic paraphrases of the Hebrew Bible. And there are thousands of these. And so when it comes to texts from the Old Testament, there are a lot of them. That is something that you could remember if somebody asks you, what about the Bible? There are a lot of Old Testament texts out there that we can turn to. 
So let's talk about the New Testament. It's a little different with the New Testament. There's 8,000 or 6,000 Greek manuscripts out there for the New Testament. There are 8,000 Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. There's 1,000 in other languages. There are tens of thousands of notations from the early church fathers about the New Testament. Compare this to great authors and historians that we would all recognize, Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, at most there's 20. Compare that to these numbers. So one of the reasons that people believe that they can trust that Scripture is true is because there is so much of it out there compared to any other kind of text. But then there's another factor, and that's the time span of when these scriptures were, and manuscripts were done compared to when those events took place. The earliest Masoretic text dates back to 895. The Dead Sea Scrolls, though, go all the way back to 200 BC. And so, what we're talking about here, but this and the time span for the New Testament, less than 200, maybe even 100 years between when something happened and somebody wrote about it, the important part about this is that the shorter the time span is between when an event takes place and when it's written about, the more accurate that event is considered to be. Less story, less myth. So, for many people, the idea of authenticity proves that the Bible is true. However, as Iron Man, you got to know the whole story. Uniqueness and authenticity to the original don't necessarily prove that the source is true. We got to look somewhere else for that. They may only mean that the Bible is authentic. And there's a lot of authentic books out there. So let's talk a little bit more then about the next section of rooms where we start talking about accuracy. So that was authenticity, now accuracy. Originally, of course, the Bible was hand copied, right? Hand copied, and we get the impression that, well, they just chose a bunch of guys off the street, come in, start copying this page over to this page, but that's not how it worked. They had guys who were specifically trained in order to do the copying of these scriptures. And they would count every letter, every word, every line, to make sure that they had an accurate copy of a scripture. And if it was shown or demonstrated to be inaccurate, they got rid of the entire work that, that the copyist was working on, and they started again. The goal here was to make sure that what they ended up with, hand copied, was accurate. This was confirmed by those Dead Sea Scrolls that I talked about, because not only were there a lot of them, but as they looked at the text on these Dead Sea Scrolls and compared it to the text of the other kinds of documents that were already in existence, they saw that they were virtually the same. There was a few differences in spelling and in style, but in the most part, they were absolutely the same, which should give you great encouragement about the concept of accuracy. Now let's talk about something that somebody will bring up. They'll say, yeah, 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 I hear you. However, what about these variants I hear with the New Testament? There's changes, there's differences, and that's true, there are. Because of the process of copying, several things could happen, and you'd say, well, maybe it's not, maybe we can't count on the accuracy because there's changes. But you see, 
the people who are, are, are experts in this are able to trace these variants back to their sources. And they're able to find out exactly where these variants took place. Well, what's a variant? A variant would be if a copyist decided that, you know what, this line is a little unclear. I'm going to make it a little clearer. And he copies it differently to try to make it clear, trying to help you out. Or it would be a time when they might, maybe somebody like, say all of you were copyists, and I'm standing up here, I'm reading the scripture, you're copying it. Maybe you misunderstand me or maybe misheard me in these New Testament variants. And so they're able to trace, oh, that variant took place that morning where Stu was up there reading that scripture and everybody got that word wrong because he said it wrong. So instead of leading towards not being able to trust that scripture, it really becomes more an issue of trusting it even more because they can trace these things all the way back. But then we had this really cool room called the Gutenberg Press Room. Now the Gutenberg Press Room, had we had a small replica of Gutenberg's press. And you know that Gutenberg's press, the printing press, the very first book that was printed on that press was the Bible. Now what does that do for us? Well, most of you guys are pretty smart. You probably figure it out. Once they got the text right, once they started printing it, they were all correct, right? That's the advantage of that. And so the copies that were printed from that Gutenberg press were all very accurate. But there was another factor. And that other factor is there were more of them. They could, prevent, they could provide greater numbers of these because they could do it a lot faster than those copyists could do it. And so there was more copies of these Bibles made available. So from accuracy perspective, we move to something else. When you talk about authority, do you think you have to establish authenticity and accuracy so that then you can build authority on something? Does that make sense? Because to me, it always did. Is all the time I worked there at the scriptorium, I kept thinking, and I even told people, once we establish the, uh, the accuracy and once we establish uh, the uh, authenticity, then you can talk about the authority. But I had that wrong, gentlemen. Let me explain why. And I'm going to go back to my military days. Let's say that the, the leader appointed over me is not authentic. Just not a good guy. Not a great guy. All of us know that there's people that aren't great. And so this guy appointed over me, even though he was a leader, something wrong with him. Faulty. Problems. Not authentic. Let's say his directive to me is not accurate. He got the commander's guidance wrong. He got the op order wrong. He got the mission wrong. And he's given it to me. And it's inaccurate. But that doesn't change the fact that his authority over me is very real. So when it comes to scripture, well, let's look at that. Because what is the Bible? Well, it's the word of God. But John 1.1 says, it is God. And that is one of the reasons why if somebody reads the Bible, it can completely change their lives. It has authority in and of itself. And so, we had several rooms that would identify the authority of God's word, showing how people 
changed their lives, made decisions to do certain things based on nothing more than Scripture. This Bible right here that you see, it's kind of tough to see the top of it there, but um, this is what we call the Martyr's Bible in the collection. And um, uh, the family that uh, now has the ownership of the, of the uh, collection, uh, they say that this is one of the most important pieces in the, in the, in the collection for them. Because the, Bible on it, uh, the, the blood on this, that's the stain on the top, is human blood. And we don't know exactly how it got there, but we do know that at the time that this Bible was being used, it was illegal to have a copy of the Bible for the average man. And so just owning a copy of it meant that you were going to be on the edge, that you were going to allow that Bible to have an authority over your life so that you could have access to that scripture. But you could pay dearly for it, and many people did. And so what this Bible says to them is that the authority of the gospel required these people to run that risk and to have a copy of it. What about this guy right here? I don't know if you know who this is. His name is John Bunyan. Now, John Bunyan was living from 1628-1688. And he spent an awful lot of time in prison, 12 years in prison. But the whole time that he was in prison, he was in prison because of his beliefs. And he was able to write books. And so he wrote many popular books, hugely popular. The first one I'm sure everybody's heard of, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Everybody's got a, probably a, a copy in their back pocket. Watch the movie. That's it. Hugely popular at that time, but the one you've probably heard of is this one here, Pilgrim's Progress. And this is where John Bunyan wrote an allegory for the Christian story so that people would understand it, even if they didn't have the scriptures. And this book, Pilgrim's Progress, is highest in sales, second only to the Bible. So if you don't have a copy, I mean, you may have one for your kids, maybe you haven't read it yourself. It's a fascinating story that tells the, the, scripture, the story of the scripture. So this is John Bunyan. How about this Bible right here, which was part of the collection? The Geneva Bible from 1560. This was a Bible that was uh, produced in Switzerland. And the incredibly important part about this is that when the, uh, set, the, the people in Europe wanted to escape the religious per persecution that they were under uh, in their lives, they wanted to escape, they wanted to go to America and live, in a and live in a land where they could have religious freedom. This is the Bible that they took with them. And so what this Bible represents with regard to authority is the fact that somebody would give up everything that they knew, their lives, whatever else that they had, get on little ships and head to America to have that religious freedom where they could worship God. That's what this kind of, that's the kind of authority this Bible stands for. This one here is the Elliott Bible. The Elliott Bible is unique in that it was the first Bible that was actually printed in America.
But what's unique about it beyond that is that John Eliot took 15 years to write this in the Massachusetts tongue, which is the tongue of the Algonquian Indians. This Bible was in a foreign language, designed to work as a missionary Bible for those people who lived in America. So think about what it took for John Eliot to do this, and then all those missionaries who used the gospel as their authority to take that gospel and take it into the new world to those Indians, the indigenous people of the country. Is fervor for a belief unique to Christianity? No, it's not. People are zealous about all kinds of ideologies. I mean, talk to somebody about the latest diet book that they get on, and they're, they're fervent about that. And so experience in our culture oftentimes triumph, uh, trumps the truth. But a changed life in and of itself is not always an evidence of truth. So here's what happened at the scriptorium. When I would go down to the last room of the scriptorium and people would be coming out, I just wanted to greet people and to say hello as they came out and to see how they were feeling. And there were several responses. The first response was this one. Let's get a hamburger. Right? They've been spent an hour in there. They were ready to go do something else. Let's get a hamburger. Let's get something to eat. But the second one is this, where they would spend hours in that bookshop looking for Bibles, biblical manuscripts, anything that they could get to take home with them to continue this experience. Many people are only looking for entertainment, self-serving, have no interest in God. And if that's the case, it's very difficult to argue them into understanding and, and trusting the Scripture. Just look at Scripture. This is Mark 3. You don't have to read this whole thing. Um, but this is the story where Jesus was uh, teaching, and there was the man with the withered hand. And it was on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees were there, and they were just waiting to see what Jesus would do about this on the Sabbath. And he said, is it, is it wrong for us to do good things on the Sabbath? And they just sat there staring at him. And so he healed the guy's hand, and they said, and, and Jesus said he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. They had just seen Jesus do what he did, and they still had hard hearts. And then at the end, once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Faced with that truth, faced with that miracle, that was their response. How about this in Mark 6? This is when Jesus had gone home. And he was teaching at home. And what did the people say? Ah, that's just Jesus. We've seen him when he was a boy. He's just the son of Mary. You know, he doesn't have anything to say. Uh, they were deeply offended, refused to believe him. Jesus said a prophet is not honoring his own home. And then look at the end there. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Folks, the Bible claims to be the word of God 3,800 times. In the claims, in the words of the Bible itself, in those prophets, look at the number of times that each one of them claimed to provide to be the word of God. You see, if somebody has a problem with the authority and the truth of the gospel, their, their problem isn't with you as you're trying to describe this to them. Their problem is with the Bible. So there is no way 
that you're going to argue somebody into trusting the scriptures. But if somebody is truly interested, if somebody really wants to know why you believe the things that you believe, my hope is that you can use these three concepts that Bob originally saw when he saw that 1611 King James Bible. Authenticity. What did we say about authenticity? You mean an example of that? Dead Sea Scrolls? Multiple copies? What else? Archaeology, right? The history that you can prove? Anything else from authenticity? Exactly. Those, remember those clay tablets. What about accuracy? What do we say about accuracy? How can you use that? They've been able to prove the accuracy of those scriptures multiple times over multiple years. Yes. Anything else about accuracy? Exactly. The Dead Sea Scrolls were able to demonstrate from very early on that, those, that the words that we have are the, are the exact words that God wanted us to have. And what about authority? What would you say about authority? Think about the last things we talked about, the people whose lives were changed. So the claims of the Bible in and of themselves, yes. What else about authority? People's lives are changed. And this is where you can use your own testimony to help share, some, share with somebody. that This is evidence of the scripture, a changed life. You can point to some of these guys like I did, John Bunyan and the, and the pilgrims, or you can talk to people that are in your own world, your own realm, that have changed their life based on the scripture. People don't change in the way that many of us have changed based on based on just uh, something that's, uh, that, that's not true. You do this because, you're, because you believe it's true. There was somebody in the back, yeah? I know the author. You know the author. There you go. So, gentlemen, I think that if you use these three main concepts, you're going to be able to share that the Bible is real, that God wrote it, and that it is worthwhile to change your life based on what you read in it. Questions? That's it, gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs>